welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites Seemingly Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Vitale, and joining me today are Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey. So it is May 8th. Is it the 8th? 9th. It is May 9th. 9th. And we are uh, a month removed from Final Fantasy VII Remake and everything that's come out since then. So obviously it's been a very busy time for JRPG fans. And we're getting into the summer months where we had our first of hopefully several like series of events and streams and programs for new games, new trailers, a new generation of consoles with the uh, Xbox inside Xbox like next gen preview, which was kind of, I don't know, people have different opinions on how well that went down, but obviously there was some news for uh, RPG genre fans, and it's the first of several as we go into, seems like pretty much every outlet or every uh, studio has different plans for how they plan on navigating these, you know, tumultuous summer months without uh, E3 or Gamescom or any other uh, different avenues where we would normally see all these things. But at First, as always, we're going to talk about what we've been playing over the last week as we've been putting our time ourselves into all of these RPGs that have released in the last month, month and a half. So uh, I don't know who wants to go first between Adam or James. Uh, I guess I'll hand it off to Adam because you just kind of had a few quick thoughts on Final Fantasy VII Remake uh, that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so uh, I didn't get to Final Fantasy VII Remake right away when it released, but I got around to playing it the last week or two. And I know we've already talked about it on the podcast, so I don't want to just re, you know, reiterate everything that's been said already. But so I really like it a lot. I think the combat is is very cool in and how it basically takes Final Fantasy's ATB system and sorts of tr- and sort of translates it into a an action based game. There's still a lot of that. ATB uh, sort of style still within that system. In fact, my own, one of my biggest like criticisms, which really isn't a criticism of this game, is I actually kind of wish there was just more to do with combat. Like I just kind of feel like the game actually is pretty combat. Like the, the the combat density is actually somewhat light. There's a lot of scenes, a lot of sequences, a lot of things like uh, that as it follows the story. And in fact places where the game sort of embellishes on the original, like the train graveyard or going up to Jesse's house and, and things like that, you know, it, those, those kind of feel like they're not as important uh, story-wise, which of course they're not, they're kind of new embellishments, but that's also where you see more combat and like as you head to the second reactor that you blow up and things like that. So like while those sequences aren't very interesting in terms of like characters or plot, that's where a lot of the fighting is. It's like, hey, I'll take it. It works for me. Yeah, I do um, kind of agree with you because a lot of the times, like Final Fantasy XII gives you several dozen hunts. Final Fantasy Thirteen gives you several dozen hunts. And even if there's very little like narrative framing behind it, it's just like a list of here are challenges for you to go overcome. How how far have you mastered the systems at play? Even uh, like Final Fantasy Fifteen had a bunch of optional dungeons, each with bosses at the end. Now, some of those are kind of bland or a drag, you might argue, but there was a lot to do. I'm not going to say the Adam Antoise fight in Fifteen was a super, you know, sterling representative of what that game could do. But in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you do have a few combat simulator challenges, but you kind of have like the boss gauntlet one where you fight the summons 
with one unique boss at the end. You've got another one where you fight the Malboro. But that's kind of it. Like it's it's something, but it's just it feels like a lot of the other games in the series went further in in giving you like post game reasons to just to play. Well, I also just think it's sort of just combat density in general. Like a lot of the a lot of the areas in this game you really only do like there's like a like an introduction to the chapter and then there may be like four or five fights that you get into and then like more more scene stuff more sequence stuff and there really just like isn't that much combat like compared to other games which maybe for some people is actually a plus and they don't really care for combat and rpgs and really are there for the story stuff but it just kind of especially because i like the combat system so much it's like i kind of just want to tinker with it and play with it more and i guess that's what hard mode's for and i will say that the game does have several bosses and on hard mode a lot of those bosses are really fun uh, I especially like the uh, the Hell House on hard mode. I think having those two idiots kind of yelling at you the whole time actually makes it more exciting. Um, and even if you like summon like Bahamut during the battle, which you normally wouldn't have at that point, they actually do comment on it. It's, apparently, they know who the King of Dragons is, and it's just kind of fun and neat. And that that, that battle is challenging enough that it's, it's it is very engaging because you kind of have to be on your toes the whole time. It's really fun. And so I completed it last week. Oh, one thing I will say is um, it is nice to play a game that has just so much money thrown behind it. I just sort of didn't think about it when I was playing it the first time. But as I was playing it the second time, I kind of realized things like um, I'm pretty sure like every single line in this game is voiced. Like every single one talking to shopkeepers, just NPCs as you go by them. Uh, there, there are no moments when there's a line that someone says that isn't voiced. And um, the way that the game basically trans- transitions from combat to cutscene kind of uh, so frequently and kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, you don't even think about like how, it's, how the game is transitioning from combat to cutscene so often. It feels so natural. And it's just kind of, it's kind of fun seeing playing a game with such a huge budget behind it, and, and kind of seeing what is cap- what what is what is possible. It's, it's fun, right? Like I am the type of person where I don't mind visible blemishes or jank or areas where you realize, okay, they couldn't prioritize this, so this is how this is why this feels less polished. But then obviously, it's it's very it, when you play a game where you don't even have to have that consideration most of the time. It is just kind of nice just to allow allow that to be like visually pleasing allow it to just kind of be the spectacle that it is and i i kind of mentioned that when i reviewed it like every single fight in that game even if you're fighting just like some random uh sweeper enemy in the in the collapsed highway just because it's so dynamic and the music score is implemented so well and the, and the transitions are so uh seamless pretty much anything can be a spectacle you don't have to wait until the hell house fight or something where it's like bespokely d- designed to be like a super dramatic thing it can just kind of happen in any given moment ever, which is, it helps, keeps you pushing forward, even though maybe there's not as many combat encounters as you would like. Who is your favorite character to play as? Uh, the thing is, is like I was switching between characters all the time, just the way I, I played. Um, and I guess also for, especially for some of those later bosses on hard, you kind of learn how the, the AI of the enemies is kind of, trained to target the character that you're controlling so it actually was just to your benefit to change characters up because the, you you could basically have 
like you, t I twitch the Barret and have him kind of attack from range and get his overcharge ability off um, from a distance, and that would raise his ATB a bit. And then the enemy, like Bahamut or whoever you're fighting, would kind of switch their attention to Barret, and then you can switch to Tifa or whatever and kind of wail at him from the back. And basically, at that moment, Bahamut is kind of trained his sights on Barret, so you're 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 kind of safe to go. And Barret, the AI of your allies, is actually smart enough to to guard usually. So they yeah uh, they play very defensively, and I've seen people <laughs> criticize that AI as being like bad or in some cases terrible. Um, I'm not saying you have to like it, but I feel like it's deliberate. Like I feel like that's a design intent where it's basically saying, hey, the most effective way to play this game with the least headache is to switch constantly. It's not the sort of game where you can have like I main Tifa or I main Cloud. Uh, which again, I'm not saying like maybe someone really wants to do that. They don't want to have to switch to Barrett. They want Barrett to be able to do things on their own, which is why you see people say there should be a Gambit system or better AI. But I do think it's deliberate. I don't think it's like an oversight or like poorly implemented. Yeah, and you can still say I don't they, like they, I don't like it, but it is deliberate. Yeah, and they prioritize um, like your AI staying alive, which is a good thing because you, you don't want to waste time reviving people or healing them. So like it's if they're not doing as much their damage output, their DPS isn't as high as it could be. If I'm controlling them, that's fine. So. One thing I sort of realized uh, also in doing those hard mode bosses, and that's when you really start to learn like what is cap what what you can do with the battle system. But like Aerith's Tempest ability is extremely useful. That's her little charge up triangle attack because um, it raises her ATB so much. So like one of my common strategies was first of all make sure the the enemy was had her, their sights trained on another uh, on you know a Cloud or Tifa or Barret. And then switch to Aerith and have her get a Tempest off. And since the enemy wasn't paying attention to, T to Aerith, they wouldn't dodge and they basically just take the full hit of it. And that raises her ATP a bunch. And then usually I can like throw off a Prey or something at that point, which for hard mode is great because you're, you get healed without using MP. Um, but yeah, I just kind of switched between all the characters and it was, I really like the combat and just kind of wish there was more of it. I will say just kind of a random unrelated note. I think the music track um, that I like, in, I, first of all, I do, in, more generally, I like how they take various tracks from the original game and they kind of remix them in various ways. Like it's not just this track and here's the, here is the uh, Final Fantasy VII remake version of it. There's sometimes like, there's more than one depending on like where you hear it. And I, I, I believe they actually yeah, had like you. a new they, I believe they actually had like a new technology to help them kind of set that up in terms of taking a tr music and remixing it with different instrumentation or what have you. So that was actually some new tech that they were using for that. But also, um, I one thing one of the tracks I actually kind of liked the most in terms of how it was remixed was the Turk theme. Um, oh yeah, some of the some of the ways they implement that are amazing. I think the one that pops to mind oh, for me there, is the fight on the top uh, in chapter 12. Yes, there's two of them. So the Turk theme in the original game is kind of like this really slow, like parlor jazz track. It's like da da da, da da da. And it's just kind of like the this slow, snap. moody thing. Yeah. Um, it's a slow, moody thing. But then there's two versions of it in the remake that I'm really fond of. One is when you're in the graveyard at the end of it, heading to your heading to the sector plate because it's about to be dropped. And you see those helicopters flow overhead, and those are the Turks. 
And it has like this really kind of high t- intensity symphonic version of the Turk theme going on there. It's basically like, it's kind of your musical cue. Like you got to get your ass moving because the Turk, the plate is going to fall and everyone's going to die sort of thing. Um, so that's really effective. And then the one that you mentioned when you're actually fighting the Turks at the top of the tower there, it's kind of this high energy kind of more electric uh, rock sort of track there. And it just they're they're just really cool takes on that theme that are also very appropriate for the moment. And it's like it's it's also just so different from the original. So it's it stuck it sticks out that way too. And one thing that I think I appreciate the most about hearing people playing through it on hard mode is each person will have a different roadblock in terms of where they find that they trip up or struggle or their strategies no longer work. Like for me, it was Airbuster. I just hated how he was at range and I couldn't play as T4 Cloud effectively. I had to like use Barrett and summons that I might have already wasted. Uh, And then for other people, they really struggled on uh, one of the late chapter 17 fights where you only have two of the party members. And it just feels like when there is no clear hurdle that is deliberately overtuned to be this giant there's no ornstein and smo there's no boss where it's like everyone gets paused here uh so when i found that every single person that i've spoken to has that different moment where they had to really change their strategy or change their loadout or change how they played or just or just practice just purely practice uh that to me is like okay that's a well-made game that's a well-balanced game this that's a well-designed combat system because people will use it people will you know interface with what they're given differently so for me it was uh airbuster like i said where was it for you see i didn't have a problem with airbuster too much um you know just put electric attacks on two two of my people and kind of so now now i'm just hoping you're gonna name a boss that i had no problem with the the boss i actually struggled with a lot even though like the strategy against him seems pretty obvious and like just do this and it should be fine was actually that midpoint boss in the uh, in the uh, train graveyard, the ghoul. What you're supposed to do clearly is that he has like a physical form and then like a uh, like a ghost form, and you're supposed to use magic when he's a ghost and you know attacks when he's physical and he's weak to fire, so you can kind of just attach a fire to your weapon and use magic when you can. But I just found like he was just kind of throwing those little blue ghostly fire stuffs all over the place, and I, I was just ha- having a hard time dodging those. Um, and I just struggled with them a bunch, even though like I knew what I had to do. It just, I kept getting hit and kind of flung around. Um, so that was the one I kind of struggled with and kind of unexpectedly because he wasn't even the chapter end boss. It's like, why is this guy such a struggle for me? I don't know. I beat him, but just kind of. Yeah. Like I can't even tell you like what, what strategy I really implemented there. Cause I, if I remember right, I just did a bunch of arcane Lord Faragas when I needed to and didn't really struggle that much. So. There you go. Everyone has a different has a different uh, demon. So uh, I think you know we talked about Final Fantasy VII a bunch. Of course, uh, I guess I will point out that in the last half month, couple weeks, the uh, Ultimania guide did release in Japan. So tons of people have been sharing the details on that. A lot of it is like developer interviews about the design intent, the narrative, you know, inspiration. A few tidbits about where they're going. Um, there's even been like some stuff about like exactly how the honeybee in chapter works or the, the wall market chapter in terms of uh, the all the dialogue choices there. So we haven't really covered that on our site, but it is like a bunch of the fan blogs and YouTubers have really gone into detail. So I'm just basically pointing it out that it's out there a whole bunch of behind the scenes from the from the there's no scenes. way. I think I think that's also the source that gave a bunch of character ages. 
And there's no way yeah. that Seng is 30. That would mean he's 15 when he visits Aerith's house in that flashback. It's, it makes no sense. Uh, no matter how you look at it. I didn't, th- I didn't think about that. <laughs> but, you know, it's like Final Fantasy, a lot of these heroes, like, we're, they're, they've done, like, so many impressive things. Like, I'm 16 years old. I'm a, a war veteran or whatever. Hey, well, the the yeah, thing about Seven, actually, is actually, like, most of the characters are in their 20s, you know? They're not actually teenagers. I think Yuffie's, like, the only one, if you're, you know, not counting, like, Red or whoever. But <laughs> so that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's not like Reno is 22 and Rude is 23 or something like that, where everyone, the most grizzled people are, like, in their mid-20s. So it is mostly realistic with a few caveats, like you said, with that saying thing. So staying on the Final Fantasy trip, which I think all three of us are going to this week, uh, James, mm. I think anyone already knows what you've been playing. Uh, last week you had just gotten to Stormblood, and you had, or you either had just gotten to Stormblood, or you had just finished the main story of Stormblood. So I, I was just then, about to. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was just about to finish Stormblood. I was like on the last MSQ, and I was just about to finish it. So, um, so I assume since I then you've been in the uh, post Stormblood, pre Shadowbringers uh, Valley. Yeah, um, so I officially got to Shadowbringers this morning, and um, so a lot of my thoughts about Stormblood last week kind of centered around the idea that I understood that for most people they considered it the weakest expansion, and I agreed with them for a few reasons, mostly having to do with a lack of variety in the overworld, maybe a lack of really noteworthy story moments, at least for me, in the base expansions MSQ. I'm feeling a little bit different about Stormblood now that I've taken the opportunity to explore some of the side content. So stuff like um, the Rathalos trial, which ironically enough was one of the main reasons why Final Fantasy fourteen back in 2018, well, not 20. Yeah, it was 2018, um, among some other things. So one of the interesting things about Final Fantasy XIV's uh, patches, ever since um, the kind of poor reception to the way that the MSQ was structured in the Arum Reborn patches, was that they've made it so that a bunch of the primal fights, the trials, are optional, whereas they were definitely MSQ before. I'm not sure how much of the Heaven's Ward's uh, Warring Triads I talked about last week. I think I talked about it a bit in the sense I felt like it probably should have been MSQ, and I definitely feel about that now that I've finished it. But now that I've played almost all of Stormblood, I'm still getting into the eight-man raid for both Heaven's Ward and Stormblood, but then once I've done that, I've almost exhausted... Well, not exhausted, I've almost tasted every content there is to kind of mess around with. There's also Eureka, which from what I understand is an entirely different can of worms. There's a very real cadence in the way that primal, well, trial fights in general are designed that you can notice from the Heaven's Word patches with the Warring Triad. And from there through Stormblood, and even further on into the Stormblood patches, where the trial fights become more bombastic, 
They're much larger set pieces. They have way more mechanics to them. And I just love them. So are they, uh, this is, this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but are they group content or single player content? Group content. Trials are, well, except for a few exceptions in base game around reborn, they're eight person instanced encounters where it's one boss fights and basically if you've played other mmos where there were their raids where there's raids and there's like multiple sections to a raid there's actually very little difference between let's say a trial and different sections of a raid even in final fantasy it's just that the trials are fully focused on one fight it's like a single or a couple rooms. It's like a subsection of a raid. Oh, into a not even multiple rooms. It's literally just an arena. Ah. And uh, there are... Well, one thing I do want to get into, and uh, it's kind of what I was talking about, how they've made the trial fights a lot more bombastic, especially going into the uh, post-base uh, post, uh, expansion story is that there's a lot more changes to the fights as they progress. Like, um, the arenas change significantly in some cases. Like, um, the Four Lords side content, which is a couple of dungeons and uh, three trials in Stormblood, is really interesting for a number of reasons. First off, I feel like they're probably some of the best uh, dungeons in Stormblood. And the trial fights are all incredibly long affairs, especially compared to some of the trial fights that you would be used to before you you attempt them. And they have a ton of mechanics. Um, probably like ten minutes or so. Yeah, I was gonna say a normal a normal raid in in rage timer is usually in the ballpark of ten minutes. Yeah, at least in my so. Yeah, but to give an example, um. Most of the Realm Reborn and Heaven's Word trial fights, they might have some mechanics, but there's nothing really super unique about them. Like, their mechanics are kind of shared between different trial fights. And that was one of my main complaints about Heaven's Word's primals, is that they felt too derivative of the ones that were in base Realm Reborn. They were interesting, but it felt like most of the mechanics they were using were mechanics that were already in place in previous fights. Not so the case with um, particularly the... Well, not so the case in pretty much all of the Stormblood Trials, and I think I kind of talked about that last week, but that's even more the case with um, the final trial for the Story MSQ in Stormblood, Shinryu, which is a fantastic set piece and also a pretty... uh, steep difficulty increase so it's actually it actually feels like a uh, triumphant uh, finale instead of just being one that's like okay well lots of numbers going around not really that difficult um an example is suzaku which is the phoenix trial in the four lords um side content they're like halfway through the fight, the entire arena changes, including the layout of the arena. And every so often, the arena will be split into four corners. 
each of them a different color, and a phoenix will be flying around the outside of the arena, passing by these symbols. And the first time it happens, it's basically just, if you see, you have to keep an eye on the phoenix, and when it's about to hit that symbol, you get off that um, section of the stage that that symbol um, corresponds to, because that's an AoE for that section of the arena. And it's pretty simple at first, because it's just clockwise and you can tell which section is going to be impacted because it corresponds directly to the orientation of that bird with the arena the second time it happens they're all lined like the symbols are all lined up to each other one after the other so you actually have to look at the symbol specifically and be like okay which color is the symbol and which one does it correspond to on the arena and you have to quickly um adjust for that and then there's stuff like um, Tsukuyomi, which is actually in the story, where there's just almost a story unto itself unfolding during the fight. And there's a multitude of mechanics, like one where the arena is split into two, a white and a black section. And if you stay on either section for too long, you get um, your debuff becomes an instant kill. So you need to constantly be swapping um, sides of the arena while also trying to keep your rotations up and also considering the other attacks that she's sending out. Um, in general, and this is something I've really thought about, while Heaven's Word does have the most interesting areas, I'd say, most of the content you're doing in Final Fantasy XIV and really the one the content that's the most memorable in general is story content, which predominantly takes place in cities, which the cities in Stormblood are actually pretty unique and they do stand out. Um, there are the instance dungeons and trials, which Stormblood has some pretty fantastic ones. And especially the trials, they're without a doubt the best that I've played in the game so far. And the actual story content in the patches gets really interesting in a way that I don't think even Heaven's Word was good about. Because the thing about Heaven's Word is that as a story, it's really good, but it doesn't actually finish up its plot threads until patch 3.3, which means that most of those patch quests are, are essentially just finishing up what Heaven's Word had started, and it's not even really building upon it. Whereas in uh, Stormblood, it feels like once the um, base expansion finishes, the story is allowed to kind of build from there, and it's it feels a lot more organic, and it really builds up to the climax of the patches in a way that I don't think Heaven's Word really did, because the climax for Heaven's Word's patches is in the middle and because of that, the transition from Heaven's Word to Stormblood didn't feel super great. But the transition from Stormblood to Shadowbringers just feels fantastic, and it really hypes you up. So I for Heaven's Word, it almost... I guess we both have some questions based on it. I'll go first. Um, so for Heaven's Word, the post-expansion patches feel like it's more tying up loose ends, cleaning up loose work, sorting things out. Where for post Stormblood, it feels more transitionary, where it's like, okay, Stormblood was that, Shadowbringers is this, here's how we're going to bridge that gap. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Or just like the, the motivation behind each uh, 
I don't know. What, I don't know. What, I don't know what the official wording is. The gap period between expansions feels more uh, natural in the second case than the first. Yeah, because like I said, it feels like Heaven's Word doesn't actually finish until after three point three, and then there's only two patches to transition to the next expansion, which wasn't great. <laughs> and then um, the way it feels like with Stormblood is that you still have content that's very distinctively Stormblood in it, both the themes of its story as well as the actual content that you're have you're gaining access to but it's building upon the themes and the story of Stormblood instead of actively finishing it so Adam so, what was your question I guess my question is um like coming at the game you know a few years later is it obvious like playing the game here's where the main quest ends and here's where the post patch stuff begins like I, i'm just not sure like yes how how well labeled or signposted is that <laughs> like coming to, coming to it late so the way it works is is that when you finish the expansion you get a credit sequence then for each of the um, patches, generally when you finish a set of patch quests, you get an achievement and almost always a little vignette cutscene. Not a vignette, but a cutscene kind of setting up what would have been the upcoming patch or the upcoming story bits at the end of that patch. So it's fairly easy to tell where one patch begins and the other ends uh, okay i was just i was just curious and so credit sequences and cutscenes and achievements make it obvious okay <laughs> yeah i feel like i haven't made it exactly clear so i'll just kind of get to my point here whereas last week i feel like i was maybe just lukewarm well no lukewarm wasn't really the right way because i still said that i was enjoying stormblood it's almost like so I like Heaven's Word and Stormblood for almost opposite reasons. Heaven's Word, because of the way that it really expands the scope of Final Fantasy XIV, it really starts coming into its own. Whereas Stormblood, it feels like, especially with the patches, that they've really honed in on what they want the game to be. And it really starts... like I can already feel like... A lot of what people love about Shadowbringers is set up by some of the um, some of the things that Stormblood kind of started. So now that I've gone through most of the Stormblood content, I definitely feel like, in a sort of way, I actually kind of and this might be a bit <laughs> sacrilegious to say in the fandom, but. I definitely feel like I might enjoy Stormblood's content a little bit more than Heaven's Word now. So, well, at least you're not just going. You're you've playing through the game, and you're allowing your own experience to uh, shape your opinion. You're not just going with what the consensus says it should be. So that's always you know the better approach yeah. you take. To and. Um... A large reason why I feel that way is kind of stuff that would be spoiler territory. But to be as vague as possible, 
especially in the MSQ for um, Stormblood, starting in like 4.3, they um, the development team really starts to play around with the ways that they allow the player to experience the story and how it unfolds. Um, to put it in another way, because I guess it isn't that much of a spoiler to say it in a general sense. Starting with 4.3, so in, in between cutscenes and instance dungeons and trials in the MSQ, there's always been situations where there will be also instanced events that aren't necessarily a dungeon, but they're rather just a single player duty. And duty is an all encompassing term for stuff like dungeons, raids, trials, all that sorts of stuff. So every now and then in the MSQ, you'll have these instance duties that are just single player only. And you see those in the job quests too. Well, Starting in 4.3 and Stormblood, there's actually some instance duties where you play as other members of the uh, Scions of the Seventh Dawn, or even other characters that are allies of the Scions, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but after you've spent hundreds of hours getting to know these characters, being suddenly able to play sections where you're, these characters, it's a novel way of showcasing the story and it also allows the developers to showcase portions of the story that would make that wouldn't make sense for your playable character to be present for. So it still allows you the player to experience these without having some sort of dissonance with the um plot as a whole. And do they uh have like their own unique um yes. plot bar? Yes, this is kind of interesting, and I hate that I always go back to this well whenever I need a, a comparison point. But Guild Wars Two has done very similar things, and I and I thought similarly of them. I think they're an interesting way to kind of explain how they're telling the story without compromising the game itself by by placing your character or your class in a position that is incongruent. Yeah, and um, it's just really interesting how they how by the time they've gotten into the Stormblood patches, it's very clear that the developers have grown accustomed to the limits, so to speak, of what they can do with the game, and they start experimenting with it. And I kind of got into a bit of that last week where I was discussing the Aether Currents and how they've kind of tied in what normally was just a throwaway side quest for getting the ether currents and brought it into a way that's like, hey, you should play these side quest chains. Well, I actually did explore some of those side quest chains, and I'm glad I did because this um, one concept, which is pretty important for the MSQ, gets brought up in a side quest way before it's even mentioned in the MSQ. So if you did that side quest chain, if you continued along it, you figure out, you find out about this whole concept way before you have before it's formally introduced in the story and there's all sorts of situations like that not exactly the same in uh, final fantasy 14 that i just love where the game really rewards you even if it's just like a little nod every now and then for really engaging with a wider variety of its content like even in the uh, return to evil um I'm sorry, I'm going to completely butcher it. Um, is it Evil Ice? Ivalice? How do you pronounce it? 
I've always pronounced it Evilese, but I actually don't know if that's Evilese. correct. Um, the Return to Evilese raids, which are the Alliance raids for Stormblood, which are which um, basically have some fun with the lore, from what I can understand, of uh, Final Fantasy Tactics and Final Fantasy Twelve, And you actually have some characters like Fron that were from Final Fantasy XII. Um, interesting stuff, though, obviously, since this is my first Final Fantasy uh I kind of miss some of that. Well, one of the I wonder how many people. Are... Sorry to talk over you, but I'm just. It's interesting that how many people have Final Fantasy 14 as their first Final Fantasy? Because I feel like it'd be more common for it to be their last Final Fantasy. There's so many people that just don't consider it because, like, oh, that's the MMO. I haven't played that one. I played the rest though. And then here's James walking in saying, like, yeah, I played 14. I haven't played a single other one though. Just very unique perspective you've got. I'm just calling that out. It's just to kind of put it into perspective, like one of the side quest characters in the Return to uh Ivalice, again, I'm gonna just butcher it. I'm sorry, Raids is a reporter who you probably won't recognize, but if you actually did the botany um, classes side quest and well job quests in Heaven's Ward, you will have interacted with her sister, who is also a reporter. And there's a little um, exchange when you start the uh, raid um, raid series where your character will mention that they look familiar and they'll say, oh, I'm so-and-so's sister. And it's just like a total throwaway line that you won't get while you're doing this raid series unless you've gone out of your way. It's like impeccable attention to detail. Yeah, and it was one of the things I loved about Heavensward, but it's like stuff like that's everywhere. Like early on in Stormblood, there's like a a moment in the story where if you are playing as a healer class, the cutscene is slightly different. And it's just like, it must be a nightmare for localization teams to have to deal with all these different possible variables. And it's like, the attention to detail is just, it really helps sell the world as feeling alive, even if it's a very theme park MMO. No, a lot of that stuff is just impressive to me. Having played a few MMOs that definitely don't go anywhere near that scale where they just treat every character regardless of their class or profession or race as kind of the same they don't they don't bother to like pull whenever they need a new character to serve a role in the story they just invent one they don't they don't pull from their from their established world to see what would make sense and have these nice callbacks so it's just easier just to just to create one for the for the how do I say this? If you have a moment where you need a person, a specific person to know something or to, to, to interact with the story in a certain way, you just create them, create them for that moment and then discard them later once the moment's over. Where the way that you've described Final Fantasy XIV over the last month, like I keep going back to you, one of your first examples was one of the Dragoon teachers, I believe. Yeah, a he's a regular character. He's a regular character and like after Heaven's Work, he continues showing up. So, so I just like, think that's that's... Like not only just for the localization, but just designing that in the first place on the uh, the original development, saying here's how we're going to use this character in this way, and we're also going to keep tack on how the players have interacted with this character preceding this point, and deliberately try to call those out. And that's just an amazing attention to detail that that's super impressive, even having not played it. Put in perspective, yeah, to put in perspective, 
some of the main characters in both the Heavensward patches and Stormblood and the Stormblood patches were introduced in A Realm Reborn or name dropped in A Realm Reborn. For example, Kryl, who's one of the Scions and one of the major characters in Stormblood, was name dropped in the A Realm Reborn patches, but we don't actually get to meet her until much later. Um, the Oda Yugiri, style storytelling. Yeah, um, Yugiri is a character that's introduced in the A Realm Reborn patches, and she has a few instances in the story leading up to Stormblood, but her entire story arc and everything about her is really like um, Yugiri and the Domans. The Domans are like half of the expansion for Stormblood is like liberating Doma. And you just learn about them in the Aroma Born patches. And that was basically sowing the seeds for two expansions down the line. It's just really impressive how much it's foreshadowing. It's a theme park, but it's, but it's such, it's well woven together where it doesn't just feel like attractions exactly. placed, on, placed on a map. Yeah. Needless to say, okay. and I, I wanted to talk about gathering um, crafting classes this week, but I've already kind of talked too much. Uh, well, MM MMOs are such massive things that it's you could go yeah. on for a long time talking about different facets. Just I don't know if I'll ever get into Final Fantasy fourteen, but hearing you talk about it every week is wanting really making me want to get into a new MMO. I think I've stated that desire before. I'm just saying it's still there. It is. It's awesome so, to be so able to hear hear it from you because i haven't played it myself and don't think i will so i'm vicariously experiencing final fantasy through through you just so you know all right so keeping on that final fantasy track uh one thing that i've been playing over the last two weeks is just pick it out of a hat final fantasy 10. so uh I've seen on my like twitter page and other socials that i feel like final fantasy 7 remake has kind of like been a shot in the arm for the franchise. I've seen lots of people revisiting Final Fantasy VII, the original, of course, 10, probably people booting up 9, 13. One person was playing through 8 Remastered, which is, you know, still also pretty new. Uh, but for me, it was 10. And I kind of went back to it because it was the first Final Fantasy game I ever played. Um, it's one of those games where I don't think, uh, no matter how hard I try, I could be, ever be super critical about it. It's one of those things where I just know I have an inherent bias that I will never really be able to overcome. And I kind of don't want to overcome it. Like, I don't want to look for reasons to try to, like, rethink how I feel about this game because it's already been so well established. Um, so I kind of just played it start to finish pretty comprehensively. I, I played it on the PC and pretty much did everything. Uh Final Fantasy X, I do still think holds up, but like I said, everything I everything I'm gonna say in the next you know in the next moment is gonna be incredibly layered and in my bias for it. But there are a few things about Final Fantasy X that I do think I appreciate, especially having played more recent games that don't execute on certain ideas as well. Like first of all, I do wanna like the thing when I'm playing through it, watching all the cutscenes because a you can't skip them. And B, I just want to see how it tells its story compared to like games like Final Fantasy XV, which, you know, struggled at that. One thing that Final Fantasy X is not scared to do is that it is not scared to kind of deliver the important information in a very straightforward way. 
And it does this through a few mechanisms. Like, first of all, the, the protagonist, Titus, is a fish out of water deliberately so that every single location, every single idea can be kind of delivered to you as if you are a student of the world and you don't know anything about it. And it can do that within the story without feeling awkward. Instead of saying, well, you want to know more about this? Read it in the codex in your menu. It's like, no, it actually like deliberately um, just presents it in a very matter-of-fact way. Here's what this is. Here's what you should think about it. And then obviously the player you know, is expected to be smart enough to know that any information that's delivered in that way has its own in-world bias based on who's stating it, whether it's you're hearing about the religion from Waka, who's devout, or you're hearing it from Arin, who's obviously kind of turned away from it, things like that. And the game just kind of even has this thematic coherency too, in that it's designed as a pilgrimage, which explains why the progression from location to location is as it is. It kind of explains, uh, it gives it gives kind of a foundation for why the story involves the whole the whole world, the whole the whole of Spira, where in a, in a few games you kind of have to like feel like you have to shoehorn in. Why is this location relevant to the story? Or like, why do we even bother going to Gengaga in Final Fantasy VII? Nothing happens there. Things like that, where in Final Fantasy X, because everything is designed as this pilgrimage where summoners, who are, you know, obviously that's Yuna in your party, must visit each location. It's just, it's a little bit forward. It's a little bit, you know, in your face. Like, oh, I guess that's a, that's a, that's a way to brute force that idea. But I think it just works. Yeah, I was actually just going to say before you started talking that I think the one thing, if you were to boil down a complex video game, like the one thing that Final Fantasy X does best compared to any other Final Fantasy, in my opinion, is its thematic coherency. Like every single aspect of that game is so centered on this, on its themes that the game delivers to you. And it's like, it's very, very, it knows exactly what it's trying to say, what it's trying to do. And it, it's it's kind of like the opposite. It feels like the opposite of a of a kitchen sink approach. Like everything feels like it's designed to fit the themes, and it does that very well, in my opinion. And the themes are, of course, like regret, loss, moving away from loss, powering through. You know, the sadness and the emotional distress that accompanies that, and every single character has their own involvement with that. Obviously. For Waka and Lulu, it's the loss of Chapu, one of them being, you know, their brother and one of them being their lover. Um, and then obviously Titus, sorry, Titus, I, I, I will probably call him Titus just because I can't unlearn that, um, has the whole loss of basically his whole world up to that point. And he himself, like, it's easy to poo-poo on him and say, like, he's whiny, he's thin-skinned, he's a brat. But I think that's deliberate like because he goes through the whole game and then by the end of the game, I'm not going to spoil the specifics, but I'll spoil the, the, the premise and the general ideas. He kind of comes to terms with what must be done and how he's involved in it. And I do think that by, by placing his initial appearance so relatively low in terms of how put together he is, how mature he is, it allows that growth to occur where if he was, if he was someone like lightning at the beginning, who's, very you know knows who they are and what they want and what they value i just don't think that would have worked as well by the end because they would have been basically the same character um and then obviously Arin's whole uh whole motivation is early on in the game Arin is the one that's seemingly most pushing yuna to complete her pilgrimage even when yuna says she's gonna marry seymour he's like i don't care as long as she continues the pilgrimage the pilgrimage is up top which seems like it's kind of the same you know 
importance placed on that whole, you know, tradition that someone like Waka puts, but then you'll learn later exactly why he's pushing for it. It's because he regrets how he's failed in his previous attempts for specific reasons uh, that I don't really want to spoil here. But basically his character is another one of those characters where there's a lot of growth there where you see exactly what was motivating him in the front half of the game once the revelations are made in the back half of the game. I think one of my uh, favorite t- lines. Go ahead. I, I think one of my favorite lines from Aaron, um, which kind of puts his character in perspective, is like someone calls him like you were a legendary guardian. And he's like legendary. I was just a boy, you know. Like he and he says, I, I wanted to change. I, I want. I wanted to change the world, and I changed nothing. And I changed nothing. It's very much. He's driven by. I regret what I've done up to this point, and I am dead set on correcting it. That's his whole arc. Um, on a more technical side, obviously, when people think Final Fantasy X, people are going to say, oh, the voice acting is not very good or that the game is super linear or things like that. And I don't really have a great rebuttal. There are plenty of places that I could poke out where the voice acting just isn't good. I'm talking about the English voice acting here. One of them is not the laughing scene. I won't go into detail, but I think the laughing scene is fine as it's designed. Um, there are, I think there are, if I was to list out some of the most awkward voice exchanges in that game that laughing scene would be like past the first dozen um there's certain there's like a side event in luca where you have to save yuna from the albed because they're trying to kidnap her and for reasons you don't understand yet and for whatever reason all the dialogue around that series of events feels so incredibly stilted uh and it feels like you see this all the time where voice actors don't know the context of the scenes they're delivering their lines in but in that case it's just like blatantly obvious and some even just the translation work where it's like you have to make sure not to tell waka about luna's lineage and and then titus is like oh i gotta tell waka i thought i told you not to tell waka it's just like i feel like there have been a ways to like obviously the idea there is that titus doesn't know when to keep his mouth shut but it's not delivered in a way that's really interesting or compelling at all and there's lots of other cases like that. However, I do want to say that I do think that the voice actors, outside of the constraints of having to match, like, match lip flaps or short windows that they have to squeeze their line in, um, there's one scene that I really appreciated on my second playthrough where you get Yuna's diary, basically, her sphere, where she talks about everything she's felt up on the journey up to a point uh, once you realize what her fate is. And obviously in that scene, Hetty Burris doesn't have to be constrained to the uh, the models on screen or the lips that are at play. She can just act. And I think she does a wonderful job. If, you th- if you're the type of person listening to this and you say Final Fantasy X has terrible voice acting, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I'm going to say that it does have moments of amazing voice acting. I, I don't use amazing often. I feel like it's it's easy to kind of get carried away of how good is good and how great is great. But just listen to Unisphere on YouTube. And then tell me that Yuna doesn't have a good voice actor. I don't. I don't think I could ever be on the same page as you on that one. Uh, so it is awesome to hear those few instances where the voice actors are just allowed to act and not allowed to, and not just trying to get their lines to fit into the game. Because that's where I think a lot of them become, become compromised. I also think it's of just course, worth mentioning that this game. It's hard to it's, it's it's hard to believe based on how good it looked at the time. But, like, this is an early PS2 game. It came out in, like, 2001. And other PS2 games at this time did not look nearly as good, did not have nearly as much voice acting. And it, it was, like, incredible. Like Dark like, Cloud. 
or like yeah or the original shadow hearts like the, so those games either didn't have voice acting or had like very sparse amounts of it so i think the fact that like this game had was like one of the very first games that had like this level of voice acting it some people have <laughs> kind of made the argument that it was the first game with voice acting which is definitely not the case but it it, it has so much of it it was kind of a new thing at the time so i i think just kind of taking into consideration the process to to make this game and to do the acting and not only not only the acting but the, the visuals and everything it was just it was ahead of its time it's hard to believe how that that game is nearly 20 years old already because it it yeah. other games from that era just look so much older and or sound so much older so at that time i, I think taking that into consideration too kind of puts it into perspective the two other things i want to talk about are first of all like the rpg progression so obviously in the last 10 years there's been different discussions on different avenues of how linear games, specifically linear Final Fantasy games, are good or bad. Um, and obviously, this all came to a head kind of like when Final Fantasy thirteen came out, where, well, Final Fantasy thirteen is super linear and it's bad, but Final Fantasy ten was also linear, and some people might say, well, then it was also bad. Or some people say, well, no, actually, Final Fantasy ten was good. And then some people boil it down to, it's like, well, Final Fantasy ten had a good story and Final Fantasy thirteen had a bad story. That's That's what it comes down to. And I think that's there's a nugget of truth in there. What I look at when I see the linearity of Final Fantasy X is that it gives you so many party members relatively early. By the time you're past Besaid, you've got like five of your party members able to change in at will. And then you pick up Arn and Riku not long after by the time you're in like, by the time you're in the Moonflow, which is like the fourth or fifth explorable area, quote unquote, you have your whole party. And you can pretty much outside of a few story events, swap them in at will. If you don't like how character plays, you're not required to use them which is like the opposite mantra of Final Fantasy XIII or even Final Fantasy VII Remake, where it's very bespokely designed. And this part of the game, you use these party members because we, we are deliberately keeping them, what's the word, like parallel, where here you've got Hope and Snow, where here you've got, uh, or sorry, Hope and Lightning, and here you've got, you know, Snow and uh, Vanille or whoever. Like they, they keep it, they keep like forking them off so that you're, so that you're deliberately having to play as specific compositions, which I think can be good in spurts. But my one of my initial, I don't think very highly of Final Fantasy XIII. I'm not going to sit here and just shit on it. But I feel like Final Fantasy XIII I would like better if it opened up the the having access to more of the party earlier. Because you have to kind of wait till Pulse, which is like two-thirds of the way through the game, if I remember right, before you have any say in who you're using. And then Final Fantasy X also has the Sphere Grid, which is, I think, uh, people kind of romanticize it. I think it, people do kind of think it was more malleable than it is. A lot of the Sphere Grid is in a straight line, and you just kind of get the stats as they're, as they're given to you, in the order they're given to you. I do think the Expert Sphere Grid, which I highly prefer, uh, does alleviate that a bunch. But when I compare it to the Crystarium in Final Fantasy XIII, or even uh, the Weapon Spheres in Seven Remake... Uh, I feel like you still have way more options with the sphere grid. Like for instance, in my last playthrough, when I was played with the expert sphere grid, I deliberately tried to get Yuna to pick up black magic and just kind of like feather the line between her grid and Lulu's grid so that I would basically have two mages and just kind of for fun, but it actually ended up being more effective than I thought. I sent Kamari down the mage grid too. So if I wanted to, I could have the full party, the three three party members be Kamari, Lulu, and Yuna, all capable of casting black magic. And for some for some bosses, that kind of trivialized them. 
where before if a boss is weak to fire, for instance, in a normal playthrough, that just basically means have Lulu cast fire. That's really all you can do. Or maybe if you want to, you can equip fire strike weapons on characters if you want. But the expert sphere grid just kind of gives you you can kind of see like where I'm going with this. Yes, the maps are linear. Yes, if I pull a screen cap of what the Meehan High Road looks like, it's a straight line. But I just feel like there's so many other ways to engage with the game that kind of allows it to be broader than it initially appears. Where in Final Fantasy Thirteen, it's just kind of like at this point in the game, you have these characters, they unlock these roles, and that's what you get. And that's where I feel like it feels claustrophobic not literally the maps being lines but just the way you play through them as well so that's well, why i think comments. Final Fantasy X succeeds where final fantasy 13 doesn't in my opinion yeah basically the idea is is both games are like like in terms of your physical space often linear but 13 is more like mechanically linear too versus 10 which is not like it opens up in terms of how you actually like how you actually play the game where 13, you pretty much just kind of feel along for the ride. This is a an old take, uh, a common take, but probably the take I agree with most. So I'm you know not out of the ordinary here, but I do think 13 becomes a pretty decent game once you get to Pulse, because at that point, not only can you basically go in multiple directions, but you can actually like start building your team at that point. Like I want to use these characters and have these char- and have these characters do these things, and so like that actually is when you actually have some like decision making to to do, which I think is a key element in RPGs. But mm-hmm. one thing that I'm also trying to reconcile my own thoughts with is you you talk about character choice, but Final Fantasy VII Remake, you pretty much never get to choose your characters there. I think like in the simulator a few times around the end. Um, it's also a very linear game. I do think the combat in uh, Seven Remake being more actiony kind of alleviates those same criticisms to some extent as well because you have more control, decision-making, if you will, in how you are actually performing in combat. Also, all the Materia stuff is kind of... I was just going to say the Materia system is a huge uh, wedge, which basically says how I played my Barret might not be anywhere close to how you played your Barret. Because I actually played, for instance, also my Tifa. This might seem a little bit unorthodox, but because she can gain ATB so fast, I gave her like mana wall and like buffing spells and even cure because I could always count on her to have an ATB charge ready to throw that out. Where some people would give that to Barrett because he's more of a tank. And maybe, maybe if you boil it down, that is more effective. But like in Final Fantasy 13, where you also can't choose your party members until way later, you're also two other things that are at play, which are the opposite of the uh, breadth of that material system gives you. Your Crystarium is capped by chapter where you can only go so far on certain lines which never branch off. So it's like you will have, they know exactly where your stats will be and what abilities you'll have at every point. And you only have certain roles available to you. The only saboteurs starting out are Vanille and Saz, I believe. And you don't get the others until we decide to open that gate for you later. Where in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you get you get revived material. Well, you can give that to anyone in your party. It doesn't matter. Like, so yes, you you're fixed in what characters you can use, but at the same, but you're not fixed in what roles they're playing or how you're using them. Where Final Fantasy Thirteen, that's shunted to way later in the game, which is why I don't gel with it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's all about that mechanical like agency, player agency, basically. Like, what can you actually do to make decisions to play the game? 
and Final Fantasy 13. I know some people love it, but I just feel like that first 20 hours, the player is basically making no decisions, and that kind of just doesn't sit with me greatly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, like I'm imagining reading like a boss guide, like you're fighting, uh, I forget his name, the guy who write, that runs in that giant mech with the silver hair. It's like, well, at this point in the game, you have this character and they have these roles. So if you're trying to design a, a strategy for them, I feel like everyone's going to arrive at the same plot at the same spot because there's only so many things you can do. Where if you're designing a um, a strategy for like a Final Fantasy X boss, it depends on which fear grid you're do, using or and where what skills have you given each uh, party member. Or for Final Fantasy VII, where have you put the materia? Who's able to do what? I feel like there's a lot more options at play and a lot more routes you can end up on, which makes it inherently more interesting. The last thing I want to talk about is the music. Obviously, Final Fantasy X's music is like people give it accolades all the time. There's nothing I could say highly about it that's going to really add to the narrative. Um, obviously, it has some wonderful compositions. But I, what I really like, you talked about this a little bit with how they've modified the Turks theme in Final Fantasy VII Remake. I really like how there are like three or four common just thematic ideas that are then filtered through that whole soundtrack. One of them is obviously Tuzan Arkind. Uh, one of them is the Hymn of the Faith. One of them is Sukata Denai. I'm going to mess that up. Um, isn't it wonderful? And like, for instance, when you first uh, when you first go to like the Mihen High Road, where you're about to do the operation that ends up failing, you hear like uh, I believe it's the Hymn of the Faith, and then also like one of the one of the preceding battle themes is like overlaid on top of it. That's very foreboding. It kind of says like this isn't going to turn out well. And then obviously when you first arrive in Xanarkand, you've got that uh, Sukata Denai. I'm, I'm I'm sorry, I'm butchering that. The 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 vocal theme that's from the. Uh, the underwater date scene in Makalania um, playing even throughout the, the battles. It does, the battle track won't cut in. It'll just allow that um, that track to play. It's I believe the initial translation for that track was Someday the Dream Will End. And then like the Hymn of the Faith is filtered throughout all of them in different modes. And even like by the end of the game where you kind of learn how corrupt the religious system is and how it's deliberately designed to keep spirit in the spiral of death, you're fighting the final boss and you hear this super warped, awful version of the hymn of the faith with characters like covering their ears. And I just think that's kind of poignant about like how they're now rejecting this idea that used to be calming for them. And you see that in the narrative too. Like uh, I, I know I started out with the narrative and I'm kind of horseshoeing back around to that, but throughout the whole game, even once you learn, uh, okay, I'm going to give a spoiler that I have to give here. Here is a spoiler for final fantasy 10 you do learn that um, at the end of Yuna's journey, she will die and her guardian that decides to fight Sin will die. And that ends up becoming kind of like the crux of how Spira is this cycle of death, how the one thing that can bring them peace temporarily will result in the death of the people who brought it. And you ask Yuna about this and you talk to the other guardians about this and they say, well, it's worth it because it, a temporary peace is still a peace and Lulu and Waka will say, well, we tried to talk her out of it, her being Yuna, but her mind's set. Um, and then you talk to Yuna about it, and she says, like, I think it's worth it, even if it's temporary. But then slowly you kind of peel away the onion, and you learn through Braska's fear, where he says kind of straight out, maybe this time it won't come back. Like, there's kind of that underlying hope where, like, yes, they can, they can state forwardly that, yeah, a temporary peace is worth it. But do they actually believe that? 
Or is there, or is the only reason they have that motivation the fact that they're hinging on the fact that maybe this time it won't be temporary? And then when you meet the when you meet the uh, the maesters, basically the high court of Yevon in the trial in Bavel, that's I think one of my most wonderful, one of my favorite scenes of the game. It's got an awesome music track. It's got this foreboding uh, atmosphere. It's got this narrative punch, where basically Maester Micah will tell you. You know, Spira is run by the dead. There is no hope other than the fleeting hope of our summoners. Sin will always come back. Uh, there is no other way. And even though that's the same thing that Yuna had been parroting, she had been saying, like, even if it comes back, that's fine. This is where it's finally like you hear it stated back to her in a different environment, and it suddenly sounds exceedingly more hopeless. And that's when the cogs start turning to say, we have to find another way. And I just think that that is such a powerful scene, like even now in 2020. And then it all culminates when, despite Yuna throughout her whole journey being told by Lulu, by Waka, by Riku, by Titus, that she should stop and find another way. She is the one that herself stands up to Yuna Leska, her namesake, and says, I will I will do this without your false hope. And she's the one that turns away at the end, at the final moment. And I just think that's that's so powerful. I don't know. I feel like I'm being so sappy about it, but I just think it works really. I feel strongly about that than anything I saw in Final Fantasy 13 or 15. I guess I'll just put it that way. Just the way it ramps, just the way it's so coherent and consistent and just the way that it just the way that it's executed. I don't know. It's just I still think Final Fantasy 10 is a really great game for a lot of these reasons, both the mechanic reasons we talked about and the narrative ones that I just just kind of babbled on about. By the way, the word you're looking for about five minutes ago is leitmotif. It has several leitmotifs in the music that there you go. it uses very effectively. <laughs> and I know no matter what I say or how many accolades, people are just going to post YouTube clips of the laughing scene or Titus saying, with Yuna by my side, super quickly. I'm like, yeah, it does. that comes with the territory. It's a game made 20 years ago. I'm not saying it's perfectly... Like you talked about Final Fantasy VII being so polished. Final Fantasy X, in a lot of ways, doesn't feel polished, but I think the execution kind of trumps that, in my opinion. Isn't that laughing yeah, scene not, like, not even an example of bad voice acting because it's supposed to sound forced? Yes. Yeah. The context the, is, the thing is, is that... Go ahead. The context is, and you probably have heard this, is that the, he basically at that point in the game, Titus has just learned, he basically has just come to come to terms at that point, which is relatively early, that he's not going home like he is stuck here and it's basically like your life as you knew it is now over you have a new life now also he he also just learned that his father is his antagonist yes his sin yeah so he, like basically everything's come crashing down around him so he cannot like laugh at this so he's basically just um forcing himself to laugh at this and then well there's yuna, also the wrinkle that yuna is the one that told him you should try uh laughing like or try smiling and titus I think there's an implication there that he's being kind of like a child. He's like, oh, if you want me to laugh, all right, I'll laugh. But then the thing is, is that you, after that awkward forced laugh, they have a genuine real laugh. Like it actually did help. And I think Yuna's relieved that her advice worked. Titus is kind of relieved that her advice worked to try to force it. And some people will still like chip back and say like, well, I don't care if it was supposed to sound forced. It still sounds awful. Like, it's still a terrible scene. I don't care well, how much context you give it. And I kind of look at it and I'm like, well, I guess it sounds awful. It's not pleasing to my ears. But that's that's the point. I don't know. Well, like, if the, something well, is well, supposed well, to be unnerved. Go ahead. 
for what it's worth, this isn't like a dub thing either. The Japanese version sounds potentially worse <laughs> as they laugh. So it's just a scene thing. <laughs> but I, I've, I've seen this discussion several times over the last 20 years where well, someone will say, well, it's supposed to sound awkward and it does, so it succeeds. But then there's always that person or a group of people that say, I don't care about the context. It still sounds awful. But to me, like, I don't, that's the sort of argument that you can't overcome where they say, I don't care about the context. I'm going to think it's bad no matter what. I'm like, okay, I guess you're free to think that. Then it sounds bad, I guess, to you, even though I feel like the situation is well established as to why it sounds bad. I guess the only way to avoid that would have been to write that out of the story entirely. Which then I guess you could argue, does that moment carry anything with it that the story carries forward from that point? And I think it does. I think it's one of the first scenes where Titus and Yuna bond. And people people sometimes already say that their romance isn't super well established. I think it is, but some people have said that it kind of feels kind of brought up uh, abruptly. And if you're just taking out one of the first scenes where they bond because you think it sounds bad, I don't know. I think the scene's fine for what it is. And I think it has kind of a deliberate reason for why it's there too. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but if you're just the type of person that says, well, it sounds bad and that's that, well, okay, and then you do you, do you. I guess that's fine. Okay, I that's enough that Final we, Fantasy. I think, that's it. Or I, I was going to start to wrap up. Did you have one last thing? All right. It's just a very small thing. That with Yuna by my side thing, that one, that is just a very small thing. But I feel like that could have been easily fixed if they just, if he just said like with Yuna, like just, you can write, you can change the writing a little bit to, to fit the scene better and not have to like cram the English line in such a small space. Like, come on. Like, that's what good, lo- good localization is. Anyway. Yeah. Like I don't, you could have, you could have picked Troy Baker, the best voice actor you know of, and give them crappy lines, and it's not going to sound good. This is kind of inherent shade to Final Fantasy XIII, but whatever. The other game that I've been playing, and I'll keep this one kind of brief because I've kind of just started, to get away from an hour of Final Fantasy talk, I recently, to give a little bit of a, of a preamble, uh, I've been playing a lot of big JRPGs recently. Final Fantasy VII Remake, Final Fantasy X, the original Final Fantasy, uh, and then... Um, I guess I wanted to play something different. So I randomly on Steam picked up Bug Fables. Bug Fables is an independent game that's basically designed as a Paper Mario knockoff. And it's coming to consoles like later this month. It's on PC game only right now. And I just kind of thought, you know, I want a smaller, simpler, happy, just kind of fun game. Simple again. There's, there's no more appropriate word. Just Just something that's different from like a big JRPG or a big RPG of any sort especially with Xenoblade kind of looming on the horizon. And I guess I have been pleasantly surprised. Like I it's I'll talk about more of this more in depth once I get really get into it, but I was afraid that this game would really feel like kind of a cringy knockoff. Like someone that had aspirations bigger than their talent to like, "Oh, I want to make a Paper Mario game because Nintendo is not not, you know, serving that dish anymore or not an RPG version of it anyway." rumors aside so i'm gonna make one and here's bug fables and i thought maybe there was a lot of ways that this could have soured or been really kind of what's the word cringy i guess i already used that word but it could have been bad but i found myself just pleasantly surprised at pretty much everything about it the music is surprisingly good um the the uh, rpg systems are surprisingly detailed 
like I'm in chapter three and I'm already like juggling like, oh, I've got tons of medals, which is their version of badges. Who do I want to give to what? Uh, how do I like, do I want this character to be focused on damage or support? Or do I want this character to be more of a tank and eat a lot of damage while the other characters, you know, are more backliners? The fact that I'm even thinking about that in a game designed like Paper Mario, I think is a testament to how well its systems are implemented. And the story itself is even like, despite being like cutesy little bugs or whatever, there's some parts where it's actually like well done. It's it's like batting above its, uh, I guess I should say punching above its weight. Like for instance, these characters, it's, it's not designed like Paper Mario where you have Mario and then a system of partners. It's just that you have three party members, Cabu, uh, V, and Leaf. And each of them is kind of like bespokely written as actual characters. It, it would have been easy just to boil these down to like super simple archetypes with like singular traits. And in some ways they are like Leaf is uh, always hungry or uh, V is always greedy and asking for money whenever she turns in a quest. But there's actually like some surprising depth that I didn't expect from this game. Like for instance, the B character, her name is V. And at, at, at a surface level, she's super greedy. And whenever they whenever they want to do like a quest or a task for anyone, she asks up front how she'll be paid. So that's kind of like her boiled down, flanderized version of her character. But then she's also got like um, um, a higher level of... Uh, I guess I'll use the word regret again, where she's kind of been ostracized by her bee kingdom because of things that she's done in the past. And she doesn't want to apologize for it because she's afraid that her apology will be rejected. And her, she's, she doesn't want to be that person where forgiveness is asked for, but not given. And just the fact that I'm thinking on that level about characters in this cute bug game, I just think it's like, this game didn't have to be this good, but it, but it is anyway. So it I is surprisingly good. Yeah, I I kind of when when they announced the PC or the the console versions of this, I was just kind of looking up like I wonder how that PC version did. And on Steam, it has like an overwhelmingly positive rating. And I know, oftentimes reviews on Steam like kind of swing in either direction. They either go very positive or very negative, you know, um, user reviews. But you still don't see that overwhelmingly positive rating all too often. So it's like, huh, the fact that this game was able to get that after like hundreds of reviews. I guess there's probably something here. Yeah, and I'm only in chapter three, and apparently I looked, I, I took a quick look at like how long to beat or whatever, and it's like a 30, 40 hour game. It's not like this little tiny thing. It's like, it's a full fledged experience. And like I said, I'm in chapter three of, a, of I believe, seven. And I'm already like, I've got side quests, I've got optional monsters to fight. I've got, there's tons of named characters. Like you, you meet like, you, what it is is that, uh, the reason why your group is special is that this kingdom has like paired off groups of explorers. They always come in pairs, but your group is a trio because you're special, basically. Um, and like, so some of these are your rivals and some of them are like super antagonistic where some of them are friendly. They all have names and personalities. Like it, it was at one point where there were so many characters introduced, all with names and unique designs where like I pulled up the wiki to try to keep track of them. And that's like, that's kind of the opposite of some later Paper Mario games where it's just like Mario and Toads. And like some of these characters, uh, and like there's also a ton of dialogue and like background information where it's the sort of game, like remember in Paper Mario Thousand Year Door, I believe it's Goombella in any, in any specific location, you could call on her to tell you about the, the location you're at. Or if you're standing next to a character, she'll tell you what she knows about her. It's like her, it's like her partner ability. And this game does that too, where like you could stand by any character 
and press enter on the keyboard or whatever it will be on the console and hear like background information and story and sometimes it's just sometimes it's just like funny quips or like man this person looks cool they have a stylish sense of, of design because they're wearing like shades and a jacket or whatever but then sometimes it'll be like this this character seems sad i don't know what happened in her past but i wonder if we can do anything to cheer her up or whatever and then it'll end up being like a side quest later so there's like tons of writing i won't say it reaches the highs of paper mario but it's 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 good enough where it doesn't feel like a copycat knockoff it doesn't feel like it's just playing parakeet it feels like it's, it's inspired in its own right. Yeah, and it, I'm if if you haven't played Paper Mario sixty four or the Thousand Year Door, I would play those first. But then, if you still want more of that, I would probably say pick up this before you do any of the rest of that series. And that's safe, I know, because the rest of that series is not. And I know people there are some fans of Super Paper Mario, but if you really want that pure RPG experience, I think this really has it in spades. I was fighting a side quest boss. This might be a. This might be a. Uh, kind of a, a bit of shade that I wasn't intending to give at the start of this, but I think this game is better side quest than Final Fantasy VII Remake. They're, they're more varied. They've got better rewards. They've got some interesting design behind them. There's this one side quest boss where you fight uh, an enemy ant who her, sorry, his whole uh, design for his fight is that he absorbs health whenever he attacks you. So you can't play carefully. You can't just like turtle and try to outlast him. You have to try to deal a lot of damage and fast and it was actually really difficult. And, I, and the game also has a hard mode, which I've been playing on, which really makes it, it's not just something you can breeze through. You really have to think and design and reconfigure your badges and abilities and what order you want the characters to, because to, even the, even where your characters are standing in battle, who's in the front and who's in the back matters. So I was fighting this boss and I actually had to like go back and admit defeat and say, let me buy some more badges and more items from the shop. If I get these things, I def definitely will be able to win. Uh, and the fact that I'm doing that in a Paper Mario, like, I think is just amazing that you can't just sit on your items and say, like, oh, I don't want to use my items because what if I need it later? Like, no, you have to use them. Like, they, the game is balanced, at least in hard mode, expecting that you will have these on hand, able to either buff your stats or heal or re refill your TP. And so even if you just want that RPG experience and even like a semi-difficult one, you've got that option here, too. It's not just lights for funs and laughs and for, you know a humorous good time there's some depth to it so yeah it's uh i guess don't judge a book by its cover and don't think of it as like a paper mario knockoff because i do think it is even with my expectations kind of aligned to that going in i have been pleasantly surprised it is good and i will hopefully I talk more about later and hope that hope that carries through once i get further into the game it's very clear that they wear their inspiration on their sleeves. They're not trying to hide it. They're like, yes, this is very clearly inspired by Paper Mario, and it has like very similar visual cues and things. So, like, that's it's, it's not really a criticism to say, hey, it plays like Paper Mario, or at least you know, it is clearly very, very inspired by it. So it, sometimes, it's not sometimes I feel, uh, sometimes I feel like people are doing games a disservice when they say. This game is like X mixed with Y. It's like, what if Kingdom Hearts was mixed with uh, Dark Souls or whatever, when they're trying to describe a game. And I feel like that's kind of like the laziest way to do that. But here, I feel like it's the most appropriate way because like you'll have the character 
who uh, mixes two items together to, to cook for you. That's directly borrowed from Paper Mario. Whenever you level up, you get to choose between HP, TP, I believe it's called here, or metal points, badge points. That's exactly from Paper Mario. There's gold versions of enemies that show up randomly on maps that drop a lot of VXP. That's directly from Paper Mario. They're not shy about that. But I think, I, if this is like the second or third time I've said this, it could have easily been done where it felt like they were pulling these in because they felt obligated to. Like, oh, if we're going to be Paper Mario-like, we have to have this and that. But they do it in a way where everything feels well executed and well put in and not just pulled in because they felt that obligation. It feels... If 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 you felt strongly about Paper Mario or Thousand Year Door, I can't see a reason why you would play this game other than maybe not liking the setting of being bugs or whatever. Uh I don't see how you could say I like this game but not that game because they are so like in tune with each other. And then speaking about the setting, I do think that there is also an impressive number of uh, like bug designs. Like I'm in like the third city or whatever, and like every like I talked about all those named characters, they all have unique designs. They all have like different takes on like here's a tall grasshopper that wears glasses, or here's a beetle that wears you know a beanie cat and a jacket or whatever. Like they they have some fun with it. And uh, it's cute, I guess. I always keep thinking of like a bug's life and like it's just, it's a bit silly and I almost feel like a kid for playing it. But, you know, some games are allowed to feel that void, I guess. I'm not going to feel ashamed for it. But yeah, it's good. Uh, I'll talk about it more next week and see if my positive impressions carry on through later in the game. And with that, we'll move on to news. We don't really have any major features to shout out this week. We have all the stuff from the last month. Uh, obviously, starting with Final Fantasy Review, going into Trials of Mana, going into Sakura Wars. We have a couple features from George and Josh, who aren't here today, but I'll give them a call out to their... Uh, George wrote that Final Fantasy VII newcomer's perspective, and then Josh wrote that Sakura Wars kind of retrospective about that series. So those are all up on the site. Nothing new this week, but what was new this week is that we, like I mentioned in the in the introduction, we have our first real glimpse at our summer deluge of cross-gen, new-gen information, starting with Inside Xbox on Thursday, which was advertised as a gameplay feature for next-gen, though you could argue, or you should argue maybe, that that's not what it was. There was not a lot of gameplay shown. But there are a few uh, cool bits of information for RPGs and uh, upcoming like release dates and trailers and things like that. So the first one is Yakuza Like a Dragon, which was already announced to be headed west on PS4 in 2020. And the date hasn't really changed. It hasn't been nailed down. But they've announced that it is also coming to Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and PC. And the PC was kind of hinted at with some Steam like database trawling or whatever. But yeah. now it's confirmed. Uh, there's still no new date. There's uh, We got a cool new like cinematic trailer for the game. But the interesting thing about it is that it uh, it doesn't really show at all that this is a turn-based RPG. You could look at that trailer and think it plays like any other Yakuza game easily. And I think it's a good trailer in terms of uh, how the music, the the story impact. The, it doesn't feel... It feels like a, it makes me want to play the game. But I also know going into it that it's a turn-based RPG and not everyone has that. Yeah. I guess there's really not much more to say on it. Uh, I guess one thing that I, ha- that I have heard from other staff members... Is that obviously with this coming to PC, uh, Yakuza 3, 4, and 5, and even 6, haven't made their way to that platform yet. Even though they, they, are all, they all are on PS4, 
but they're not on PC, and I don't think they're on Xbox yet. Those are only up to Koami 2. Um, and some people, like, obviously, Sega is trying to kind of position this as, like, a new launching point for the game. Because in Japan, this is clearly called Yakuza 7. But in the North American version, they've just changed it to have just the subtitle, Yakuza Like a Dragon. And uh, one of our one of the people who contributes to our site infrequently, uh, Kazuma Hashimoto, is a big Yakuza fan. And he's basically said, you're doing yourself a disservice if you jump in on this game because it does require knowledge of the previous ones, which is usually a attack that we find ourselves on when we're talking about like the Cold Steel series. But it's apparently true for Yakuza as well, where if you go into Like a Dragon without all that context, you are going to be missing out on things. And I know certain people have different like degrees at which they're comfortable <clears throat> going in a bit blind. Like I believe, Adam, you're the type of person where you don't really mind going into a game where you don't have all the background information, even stuff other people consider essential. It seems like if you were to play Yakuza Like a Dragon, that's the same mindset you would have to have if you haven't played Zero through six. Yeah, I, way- I tend to, uh, um, like, I, I'm not the type of person who needs, like, every single facet explained to me or, like, heavily detailed. Like, if I have just kind of the gist of what's going on based on what is shown to me, then I'm fine. But there is a limit, you know, like, depending on how exactly something is introduced or not introduced but brought into the game. Like, like... Like, for example, you can watch The Lord of the Rings without having watched The Hobbit, and you're fine. Um, but or, or read The Hobbit or whatever. But, um, you know, there are some two towers just, without fellowship. Less so. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it kind of just all depends on what you're missing out on and how, how crucially important it actually is. It just depends. Uh, the way it I see like, it, um, right, at least for Yakuza 7, is that since it's a new character and because of the backstory for that character is that they've been isolated for a long time before the story happens, I think that unless there's some really specific circumstances that would that would really, really make it necessary for you to have um, played the previous games, I think it makes sense that you would be just as much in the dark about certain aspects of the plot as the main character would be. So I'm not sure if it necessarily is something that players need to have, but then again, like with Cold Steel, like with any like long-running series where it ties in with the story, it's not so much about the story itself, but rather, I guess, the emotional impact of story beats. So I don't right, know. like you I might know. you might be able to understand the story just fine, but you might not feel as strongly about it if you don't have the background. So that's kind of like it's straddling the line where do you need it? Well, that's a yes and a no. You don't need it to understand it, yeah. but you might need it to enjoy it more. Um, yeah, kind of like uh, the crossbell section in Cold Steel Three. Like it doesn't nearly land as much unless you've actually played the the uh, crossbell games. Which is and that's actually the boat I'm in, where like I feel like I could glean. Okay, I, I have an idea of who this character is, what this location is, but I haven't played the game, so I don't have that emotional impact. And that's not that's not something you can just imagine. Well, what if I did play those? Like I won't know how that feels probably ever, unless I even if I go to play crossball games and then replay Cold Steel Three, the impact will be, will have already been different. And the reason why I keep crutching on the trail, Cold Steel analogies because obviously i haven't played yakuza 7 or i I haven't played past kawami 1 um 
I'm the type of person that actually really likes turn-based games. I know some people are like, oh, turn-based is an archaic, you know, necessity from the PS1 era that we should drop or whatever. But I really think you can do some interesting things with that. And we've seen that with like Cold Steel and uh, even Saga. like Saga Scarlet Grace. Yep. Uh, there's our, there's our required am... Saga call out. Yeah. So I actually am interested in Yakuza 7 because it is turn-based. And I'm just going to kind of, if I end up playing it, I'll probably just go in with the understanding, all right, I am missing information, and I am okay with that. So that was kind of the one of the big highlights. Obviously, the biggest highlight of this show was Assassin's Creed. But obviously, as an RPG-focused site, we're trying to poke at some of the the second rung of these RPGs that they showed. Go ahead. Was it though? Because they they'd already announced yeah. it. They said, "Oh, it's going to be a little bit of gameplay," but they barely showed anything at all. And that's so. probably why we're not leading off with that. Despite us covering Assassin's Creed, I don't think we really have any notes to even talk about it on this podcast because we talked about it on the last podcast, and there's really no new information there. Uh, it was more of a mood trailer than anything else. It was just like, here is your character, and here is him fighting some enemies, and here is him using a ballista, and it's just like, uh, and, but it wasn't like direct gameplay. It was like in-engine scenes. So it was like, okay, <laughs> we kind of already saw this. <laughs> so yeah, kinda there was like a few. There was a few developer interviews, and I'm not even going to guess what outlet it was because I don't remember. But one of the things that they did talk about that I found interesting is that obviously uh, Valhalla is going to stay on the same line that Origins and Odyssey did, which introduced like dialogue choices. And they were talking about a little bit about the design of those and how they want Eivor to be a bespoke written character. It's not like a Fallout game or something like that where you inherit the character or Outer Worlds or whatever. It's like it's more it's more I don't know if they use this analogy or if the or if the outlet did, but it's more like The Witcher Three, where Geralt Geralt, whatever his name is, uh, is a character, but you still have dialogue choices. It's just that they revolve around a certain idea and you can't just wildly swing from Paragon to Renegade or whatever. Um it, it, like it'll still incorporate the character's identity into the choices, but you'll just have a little bit of say of which way to lean it. Which I think for if they're trying to make this Evor, like an actual written character like Desmond or Ezio or whoever, that seems like a good way to do it. So it's not quite a Western RPG in the sense of the character is your own, but you do get a little bit of sway. Anyways, I guess that little two-minute talk about Assassin's Creed is really all we can go on there because most of the information is still what they just gave in the uh, blowout two weeks ago. One of the other RPGs that was shown in the Inside Xbox thing was a new project from Bandai Namco called Scarlet Nexus. It was originally announced, not, it wasn't announced as an Xbox exclusive, but it was kind of like like they were shying away from calling it a multi-platform game. But then Bandai Namco, like the next day, sent out a press release saying, yeah, it's also coming to PS4, PS5, and Steam. So this is a new action RPG. It kind of looks similar, uh, I've heard, to like Astral Chain slash Code Vein. Okay, here's that option. Here's that thing again about just combining two games to try to loosely explain what the, what this new one uh, comes across like. Uh, but it's the enemy it's designs are really on, weird. Yeah, they say it's got the talent behind it of like the Tales series, specifically calling out Tales of Vesperia. But they might have just done that because that game awkwardly has some sort of like Microsoft ties with it. Um, but it doesn't really feel like a Tales game at all. They say it has that talent behind it but i don't really see it coming through in what they showed yeah and they don't they don't give any names 
of who's behind it. At least I didn't see it unless it was on the Japanese side of things, other than the producer, who is the same producer as Code Vein. But, you know, the producer is obviously a very important role, like in terms of like actually, you know, forming and creating and delivering on a product. But in terms of game design, we're not, not sure. Yeah. It looks. It looks kind of rough, but it looks interesting enough. And I do still like the idea that we're able to see these games on Microsoft stage. Though speaking of games like this coming off on Microsoft stage, people are wondering man, what Tales Namco, of Arise is. Yeah. Man, Bandai Namco really loves uh, showcasing their games at Microsoft events. And then kind of when people say, well, what about PlayStation? They'll have to come in the next day and say, yeah, yeah, it's still on PlayStation, which... I think obviously it's a smart move. Obviously, that's where the uh, audience is. But I, like I said, I'm glad that we have a place for this. It's not like it's not like this is not allowed on an Xbox. I'm glad we're at a place where we can play Final Fantasy and Tales of on those systems. It's funny because, for- like, I remember when years ago uh, Phil was saying that he was um, he was really like he was having those meetings to Japan in like to Japan to try and kind of claw back some Japanese uh, software support for Xbox. Like, people kind of clowned on him a bit. And, like, especially over the last, like, year or so, it definitely feels like those efforts have come to uh, bear fruit, especially with stuff like the Fantasy Star Online 2 situation and Yakuza and whatnot. And, yeah, like... When those games also show up on Game Pass, you might not originally be inclined to buy a Tales of or whoever on an Xbox system, but the fact that they're trying to make their services more platform agnostic, seemingly, at least between PC and Xbox, like you might not feel inherently that you're intending to play Tales of Arise or whatever on an Xbox system, but if it comes to Game Pass, then you might consider it. And then the fact that you have reason to pay attention to these uh, Xbox marketing outlets, whether it's inside Xbox or X-Zero or whatever they call their their yearly event, I think that's good for the industry rather than just trying to shoehorn them and say, oh, Xbox is all Call of Duty and multiplayer shooters or whatever. I think on this inside Xbox, they actually really did show a nice variety of games and of different scopes too. You can say what they showed of each game was not the best, talking about Assassin's Creed, but the variety, I think. You've got like your big title like that. You've got your your Bloodlines, which is kind of like a, a cult classic fan favorite. You've got your Bandai Namco kind of like second tier game here with Scarlet Nexus. Just wondering where that big uh, Lost Odyssey reveal is, huh? Or or some big JRPG that they're putting their footing behind. Not an RPG, but uh, seeing some uh, Dirt 5 stuff was interesting, especially since I found out that uh, some of the developers working on it now at Codemasters... It is Codemasters that does that, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I, I think so. Um, actually, has some ex uh, Motorstorm devs on that, and like rewatching that kind of trailer with that sort of knowledge in mind, it's like, yeah, I can see it. So I'm excited to play more. Well, play more yeah. dirt. To try to reel this back in because I just never stated it. Uh, so Scarlet Nexus is an action RPG from Bandai Namco. Uh, you take on the role of Yuto Sumeragi, who is basically talented in psychokineticis, exploring a futuristic city. And there's like a bunch of weird monster designs. And like he's got like these visual blemishes based on his abilities or whatever. So that's kind of the general premise. Yeah, he's there's like a these monsters, they look like flower bouquet zombie things. And I guess 
for a long time they were basically unstoppable, but then now there's a new there's a new force of anime characters to take them on. on a, and the best way to describe the enemy designs in that game, from what I've seen, is it basically take the lamp from a Christmas uh, Carol or Christmas Story, whatever. The one, you know, you're, you'll shoot your eye out and basically just make that lamp into a living creature and that's the enemy design in this game. <laughs> but yeah, it looks I will say like this, and I think a lot of people just really are have an affinity to that art style. I feel like Bandai Namco is current, I don't know if it's still technically shell shading at this point or not, but it ha that's the appearance it has. I think it looks really nice, it's like just technically, not maybe not artistically. Also, though, like whenever they showed like quick clips of gameplay for this, it seemed to like I know this is a debut trailer, and the game is they didn't they didn't give a release date, so it might be you know years off. Who knows? But um, some of those clips kind of struggled a lot with like frame rate and stuttering, and it just I know it's a debut and it's not final, but it's just like that's not a great look right away. So. <laughs> But yeah, it's, we didn't get well, to see a whole lot of it functionally, so who, we'll, who knows. One of the other games that they showed that I'm very interested in that I thought had a poor showing was Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2. So this game obviously had like its big marketing blowout like leading up to about right at E3 of last year. I think, I think we had a Gamescom trailer too. And it was originally slated for March, but then they delayed it indefinitely. And it's kind of been quiet since. Like they had like weekly or bi-weekly like clan updates and location updates. But then they really went silent to kind of like retool the game. And this is kind of like a re-reveal of some sort. And it was this weird trailer of a vamp of like a series of vampires. And if you if you're knowledgeable about Vampire the Masquerade, the tabletop game or the previous game, you can kind of identify who's shown is from which clan. Uh, but they're all dancing. Like that's the theme of the of the trailer is that they're all dancing like around their victims or soon to be victims, and I just think it has like this kind of awkward vibe to it. And the presentation and animations weren't that great. It, it showed a bit a bit of gameplay in the back half of the trailer that I think show, was uh kind of nice, but just the whole vibe of the trailer itself I thought was a bit weird. I don't know if anyone else has any ideas or comments on Bloodlines too. I, I guess what this was announcing on Twitter. Go ahead. And some some people seem to really like like I love how weird this is. So like they really took to the weird aspect of the trailer. But I don't know. I didn't really get. The, I didn't really feel that Vampire the Masquerade, the original game, was weird like that. So I don't know. I'm still interested in what? the game. I, I just it might, it might be the sort of game that just does not portray well in trailers. Being like a first person, it's almost like almost like a first person simulation type game. So that doesn't really, maybe that's not well suited to trailers. I saw someone playing through the first game and they described it as seedy. Like everything is grimy and like no matter where you go, everyone has like a secret, like, you know, a second face that they don't show to the world, which obviously is very appropriate to a vampire, you know, narrative. But I didn't really get that here. This felt just kind of like we're vampires and we're proud of it. We're dancing to our, to our, uh, what we are. I don't know. Um, the announcement here was that it's coming to Xbox Series X and then later PlayStation 5. So basically Vampire the Masquerade, Bloodlines 2. We don't still don't have a release date for it, but it's been basically now it's a cross-gen game. That's what it is. Uh, 
I don't think the trailer, like, I'm still interested in the game because I kind of know what the first game played like and what the gameplay of the second game has looked like so far, and I'm on board. I just thought that this showing of it was really kind of awkward. I don't think it's going to bring people who are on the fence to, to climb over it, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. All right, that's Vampire the Masquerade. It's still coming out. It's still slated for 2020, but we don't have a date. One of the smaller games that they showed was a isometric RPG called The Ascent. It looks a lot like a combination between uh, um, Wasteland 3 and then like a twin stick shooter type game, like almost like Darksiders Genesis. It looks fine, but it also kind of looks like a bunch of games I've seen before. I don't know. There's not a lot about this trailer that makes it really stand out. It's like a dystopian futuristic city. It almost kind of looks like a cyberpunk aesthetic from an isometric perspective. It also uh, it also does the, the the same sort of premise we've seen before, where it's like the world is owned by like a giant corporation and you're fighting against it. It's like kind of like with the Outer Worlds and other things recently. Yeah. Just it's like okay, that doesn't seem all too original now, especially now. But yeah, it doesn't really like, it doesn't really like, stand out. <laughs> the game, like it might it might be fine. It's just there's not a lot about it that really hooks me right away it might be well made and it looks fine for what it is it's just that again it might just be one of those games that doesn't trailer well um it's from a swedish studio called developers neon giant and this is their debut game um so i'm always i'm always rooting for those smaller studios to get their to hope that their debuts are successes because you know like reggie said at the game awards every studio was independent at some point um so I'm obviously rooting for it, and I I have a natural affinity to like these isometric RPGs. I do think that I feel like the space is a little bit not overflowing, but crowded now recently. And we've already seen a few duds come and go, like that Paranoia game that kind of crashed and burned last year. So you always kind of have a little bit, of, or I do anyways, a little bit of trepidation in going into any of these. But yeah, that's the Ascent coming out for uh, Xbox One, Series X, and PC. Isometric, grimdark, cyberpunkish game that plays a little bit like a twin stick shooter based on the gameplay trailer for it. That was the last of the RPGs shown at the event that I had listed. Was there anything that, that you think I missed, or or any other games of, like dirt that weren't RPGs that you wanted to call out? Uh, yeah, that's I the sort of event it was. Right. Yeah. Where's Tales of Arise? Where is it? Seriously, where's Elden Ring? Yeah, Elden Ring too. Where's that? <laughs> All right. On, uh, another big piece of news that obviously we're interested in from this week. Well, it's still a rumor at this point, but uh, EA in one of their, was it an earnings call? They were talking about having an HD game for this year. Uh, and Venture Beats Jeff Grubb, kind of, he's been in a, this is a weird way to state it, but in a leaky mood lately, he's been kind of been unashamed to share out kind of what he knows or thinks he knows. Uh, and he basically said that EA is planning on on having the Mass Effect trilogy as an HD remaster of some sort coming this year, which obviously I think has been kind of on everyone's wish list from EA for a good while now. Because uh, right now there's really no convenient way, especially on PC, to just play through that series with all the DLC attached without worrying about online pass or 
you know, added DLC extras that you got to purchase kind of, you know, singularly. So what are, what are our um, expectations or hopes for uh, the Mass Effect Trilogy HD remaster? Um, well, I haven't actually played the series, so I can't say, but I do know that a bunch of the people I've been fo- I follow on Twitter have been kind of being, I wouldn't say, well, a little bit pessimistic in the sense that they're saying that they're not sure how well, well, they're not sure how well some of the animations in the series have aged, so it's going to be interesting seeing the modern reception to it. I guess, so uh, Mass Effect 2 and 3's combat is pretty similar, but 1's combat is quite a bit different. It's a little bit less action shooter and more RPG, and I'm wondering if maybe they will try to tweak Mass Effect 1, maybe more so than the other ones, to kind of like have it be more mechanically congruent. But then There's, there's also you know, whenever... things like how, how 1 has ammo and 2 has heat cylinders or whatever they called it like the like the actual mechanics underneath are slightly different but yeah i was just wondering if will they tweak it to be more similar to the other games and of course if they do you know <laughs> whenever you change something like that people might not take it the right way you know some people really like how the first game was maybe a little bit more of an rpg than the later games which were a little bit more actiony but i don't know maybe it'll just be a, yeah, i feel like i feel like the up. safest way would be just to leave them as is, because otherwise, you're, it, let's say for convenience sake that half the people playing the game prefer Mass Effect One and half prefer Two and Three in terms of pure gameplay. Well, then if you change one to be more like the other in either direction, you're going to piss off. I feel like piss off is too uh, too extreme, but knowing how some people react, maybe it isn't. Uh, I feel like the only safe way would be just to leave it as it was. That way, it just is what it was. I'm like. For me, I would be happy, and I find that I'm this way for most remasters. I'm happy if they kind of just touch it up, package it together, maybe you know render it at a higher resolution, maybe do some basic visual tweaks that they can. I don't feel like I feel like whenever you decide that something must be overhauled, whether it's animations or art style or the ending, I feel like that's when you're at risk of really kind of bungling the product or like not being faithful to what the game was and why people liked it in the first place. If the Mass Effect trilogy is a nice, well, let me just say 4K, because it doesn't have that much animation going behind, or maybe for whatever whatever it ends up rendering at, a nice convenient package where your 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 shepherd that you create daisy chains from one to two to three in a nice fluid manner, uh, with all the DLC attached, and it's just with a nice complete package. That's all I want. I I don't when you say like the animations of Mass Effect One might be aged. I'm like, well, it's a it's a 14 or 15 year old game like i'm okay with that i don't need that to be brought up to modern standards that's just my opinion well i mean i've already played it and i'm not that eager to like replay it so yeah just you if even if they do re-release it i probably won't replay it i'm like yeah i've already played it i don't i don't feel that eager to play it again yeah but i guess uh maybe maybe since you and i have already played this James, if if you had even a passing interest in Mass Effect, does a does a new trilogy set make you more inclined to try it? Not really, because of uh, like despite all of the con the uh, controversy about the third game and like oh the ending's bad, blah, blah, I've heard enough from people that really do enjoy the series that even outside the ending they weren't 
super happy about Mass Effect 3, and it feels weird to want to get into a trilogy when it seems to be a common consensus that the ending to said trilogy was a disappointment. So I don't know. I mean, that's 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 valid. It's not like uh, some other trilogies off the top of my head, like Xenosaga, where you're told the third game is the best one, and then that gives you motivation to play for the other two. Uh, and I'm I'm kind of with you, and this might not be the best comparison, but like I think of uh, Lightning Returns. Like I've really had no inclination to play that, and if they packaged a Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy together, like well, I have really no desire to play two of those three games. So just on word of mouth, maybe that's not fair to not experience it for yourself, but I do understand that line of thinking. I would probably replay through a Mass Effect trilogy because I know the games aren't too long. I did enjoy most of what I played on them. And especially, first of all, this is a rumor. I should basically declare that again. But if this is the case and we learn that they aren't doing any major changes to the narrative, which I don't think they should, but I guess it depends on execution. Um, I could see myself replaying through this again. Just like the same way I played through Final Fantasy X again, just, just to see like, how my opinion shifted or if I come at it from a more adult point of view, if I like the game better or worse, things like that. Plus it'll just be nice to be, have a convenient way to play it rather than digging through origin points or whatever, or pulling out your Xbox 360. Remember Bioware points? No, it's something like you had to like, it was, it was the old Microsoft point system specific to EA where it's like you want if this DLC costs 800 Bioware points, which is actually 10 bucks, but you know stuff like that. It was just a mess, and then it all got like looped into this origin thing. But there's like those legacy systems of Bioware in the back end. It was a mess. So just the fact that you could play pay 60 bucks or whatever for all three games and everything is just like that alone is reason for this to exist, in my opinion. Finally, one last bit of news, which we always seem to close out these podcasts on, is that. Uh, last week, or maybe the week before, we learned that like uh, GDC Summer was canceled and Evo was canceled. This week, Paris Game Week is canceled and Tokyo Game Show is canceled. In the second event, the Tokyo Game Show, they did announce t- plans to have a digital footprint instead, which obviously it seems like about half of the canceled events state that desire. Whether or not it turns out, we'll see. But I think that pretty much covers it for this this whole calendar year, right? Um, this whole calendar year, I believe, we uh, don't have much to look forward to in terms of actual physical events. And there's not really much else we can add about this because it's just like it's more COVID-19 yeah, it's a- stuff. It's like it, it was at this point, it was inevitable for both of these. Yep. But figure if we've been calling them out up to this point and... These are the final dominoes, I feel like. So we'll see how everyone's summer theme and summer fest. Oh, yeah, that we'll see. You know, pretty soon, we'll, or maybe very soon, we'll get into this what if or how. And we'll see actually how people are like as we get into late May and early June, exactly how this pans out. And we'll see whether or not it's good or bad. Yeah, I'm going to try and save that discussion for like when we get closer to when the next uh, 14 patch releases. But it's like, I'm really curious. They've had like a very consistent cadence, like looking at the release schedule for the updates and the expansions for Final Fantasy 14 for pretty much all of its life since Realm Reborn. 
and just even one patch being pushed back a couple of months how does that affect the rest of the release schedule not to mention that like with the way that work from home is kind of an issue in japan like how's that going to impact development is it just going to be one patch is it going to be the next expansion like it but again that's discussion for another day i guess i'm just interested to see through whatever online summer event whether it's jeff Keeley's thing or ign's thing or GameSpot's thing like right now if you look at the back half of the of the yearly calendar for rpgs it's pretty barren um i'm not i'm not trying to poo-poo on that so much because there's deliberate legitimate reasons for it uh you just wonder like is it all just going to be pushed to like early 2021 or will we still get a bunch of big things announced and it'll be kind of business as usual because some studios like for instance like cg project with cyberpunk they're pretty much seemingly like all still on board for their stated release date in the back half of the year uh but not every studio, depending on the size, and like you said, just whether they're uh, have work from home, uh, just kind of like the environment behind that or not, whether it's a Japanese studio or a Western studio or a European studio, um, different different studios, different sizes are going to be affected differently. So it'd be interesting to see what this fall as a if right now we're kind of in the uh, the main event in terms like the main we're we're in the deepest part of the pool when it comes to COVID nineteen. I feel like. And then is this if this fall is kind of the repercussions of that, how different is it going to feel? Well, right now it's just a guess, and we'll, we'll see when we get there. So as always, thanks for joining us on this edition of the TetraCast. Uh, we have all the news from the Xbox uh, event, Inside Xbox May 7th edition, on our website about Scarlet Nexus, about Yakuza, a little bit about Assassin's Creed. Um, we have... Uh, our Twitter page at RPG site where we've been posting all of our news and you can find us there most regularly. We also have YouTube and Facebook at RPG site net. Uh, you can also find our discord from our homepage where we are constantly inviting new people to talk about RPGs specifically Final Fantasy, Trials of Mana, uh, Sakura Wars as well, things like that. If you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at Zeomasica, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. I'm currently posting lots of images from Bug Fables, uh, which is better than it sounds, I promise. Uh, Adam, where can they find you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James? Oh, did you step away? No, right at the end. At T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. Um, you can watch as i go through uh shadowbringers live vicariously through james like i am for shadowbringers and you will likely hear from us next week until then take care <laughs>